Well, good morning. Would you join me in opening up our Bibles to Exodus chapter 3? Exodus 3, it's page 46 on a blue pew Bible. If you do not have one, I'd love, love for you to follow along with us. And uh, that is the first time in over eight months that I've asked you to turn to somewhere other than the Gospel of Mark. Um, if you're new with us, we began a series in the Gospel of Mark going verse by verse through the whole thing in January, and we're taking a break. We're not done there yet. We got five chapters left, but um, every fall for the past four years, uh, beginning the weekend after Labor Day, and that was not me misspeaking, fall began the day after Labor Day. All right, summer's over. We just need to accept it, move on. NFL starts today. Somebody walked in with a pumpkin spice latte, and off we go. All right, bring the flannel, bring it all, and summer's over. It was great, and it's over. Okay, so I don't care what the calendar says. But so every fall, we uh, began a series uh, that preaches through our vision at Grace Church. This is the fourth year we'll be doing it. And, and our vision, hopefully being what we hope and see, is God's vision for the local church. And so um, our vision statement up on the screen here is uh, glorifying God by making disciples through Christ-centered worship, community, service, and mission. And so this is what I've said for all four years, and I'll say it again now. I really don't care if you memorize that. It really does not matter to me if that's kind of in your iPhone every morning when you wake up. Like, great if it is, but it doesn't have to be. What I care more than that is that your minds and your hearts are marked by the truth that's behind that statement. The statement that we hopefully got and, and did get deeply immersed in Scripture and what is God's vision for us. And, and there's a reason we do this every fall. And so to start, it's, it's not just for the quote-unquote new people. Um, like, on one hand, yes and amen, uh, God has provided us a number of new faces since last fall. We do think God is doing just a great work here of drawing many people in, but, but this is not just for those who may be new. Because we want to be completely clear over and over again, continually, explicitly clear in laying out, why are you here? What is our purpose at Grace Church, because if if we don't continually, faithfully, explicitly lay that out, we're prone to forget, aren't we? Like like the churches, not the pews you're sitting on, like we praise God for this building, but this building is not contingent on the church. You look to your right, you look to your left, you look in front of you, you look behind you, that's the church. And every person, whether they realize it or not, are waking up and there is something that is fueling them, some kind of vision, some kind of mission. And, And here's the thing is most people, I would probably say, don't even really know why they do the things they do. If they were honest and really nailed down, why do I do this? Why do I do that? Why do I not do this? That can even get really muddy. And so there's this recurrent theme all throughout Scripture. If you read your Bible enough, all different genres, Old Testament, New Testament, you'll see this word pop up again and again. And the word is remember. If you're a follower of Christ, you need to remember and if you're trying to follow him faithfully in your life, most often when you come in here or when you do anything related to the church, most often you do not need something new. You need to be reminded of what you already know. Constantly. Because if not, we're just prone to forget. God's people, all people are just prone to forget. And maybe even worse, if not forget, we tend to get just bored. And we get to the point where we wouldn't kind of say this out loud, but in our hearts we go, I just don't really care. Like, what happens when you get to that point where you just stop caring about the gospel? It stops standing at the center of your life. It's a scary place to be. So the question of why 
do we do what we do? That's a reminder for everyone. And I wonder if I just called you out and brought you up, and I won't, but I just said, hey, um, why are you here this morning? I mean, the picnic's canceled, all right? I mean, do we, we heard that. I mean, I would understand why you were here. Like, we would have had burgers, and there was a slide, and there was a pony or a horse. I don't know what was coming. Um, but, but, okay, that's off the table. Why are you here this morning? Why are you in a grace group? And if not, maybe why should you be? Why do we have 10 people as we speak serving in the nursery down the hall, eight people downstairs teaching kids the gospel? Why have over 30 people, I think about 37, 38 people that came into church this morning with a heart to serve, coming in, pulling in, parking, walking in, going, I'm coming to this church body to serve this morning, many of which are not even in here right now, that they're serving so you can be. Why? Why did our youth go on a missions trip to Boston this summer? Why, when the plates just went around, did you put some money in it? I mean, this area's expensive, isn't it? Taxes are insane. Not a lot of discretionary income. Why, why, why would you give your money away? Why are we helping one another follow Jesus? Why are we equipping people to go be salt and light in the world? I just want to know why. Because when you add it all up, it's time-consuming. And it takes a lot of energy. And it might be frustrating at times, and life is busy, and so what is the point of it all? Is church worth it? That's what I want to know. And with that said, I have a confession with this series, um, and every time we've done again, this is the fourth year, it's always been a four-week series. And we've taken one week for each of our four pillars. We have worship and community and service and mission and how that's Christ-centered. And so we did uh, a four-week series for three years in a row, and each of those years, I never explicitly preached on the most two important parts of our vision statement. And I was wrong. I mean, looking back, I kind of grieve over it. I never explicitly proclaimed, what is it to glorify God? Which is the blazing center of it all. What is it to make disciples? I jumped right to the end, and so I just freely confessed that, and now can say, we're changing it to a six-week series. And this morning, we have the joy and responsibility to zero in on glorifying God. And over the next six weeks, we will see how we glorify God and what we should be doing, what that should look like to glorify God. But this morning, I just want to know why. Why? If you hang around this church enough and the people within it, you will hear that phrase in our prayers often. You will hear it in our songs. You will hear it in the preaching. You'll hear it hopefully in just conversations to one another. You'll hear it in people's text messages and see it in their emails. Glorify God. All glory to God. We want to bring glory to his name for his name's sake. So what's it mean? The danger with church phrases is that they can remain just church phrases that never relate to our lives. Why is glorifying God the best and most important purpose a believer can have, and by extension, a church of believers have in this world? So it's going to be a little bit of a different sermon. We're not just in one passage. We're going to start next to this three, but we're going to kind of take a tour throughout Scripture because I want to show how the whole scope of Scripture points to and spotlights the glory of God as the center of it all. This is not one verse. This is not one passage. This is the whole Bible and what it's pointing to. What's it about? So here's how I want to start, just a couple of definitions that then we'll be able to unpack. Just kind of lay it out simply up front and then unpack it as we go. Um, what is the glory of God? And then what it is it to glorify God? So, so first, on the screen, the glory of God, to put it simply, 
is the infinite grandeur and worth of all that God is. Every attribute of him put together, the public display of all that he is, that is his glory. And so to glorify God, which again, blazing center of our vision here, is to praise him, to make much of him for his infinite grandeur and worth. So two definitions just to start us out. And I mean, my prayer is that for many, if not most of you, this sermon will just be throwing gasoline on the flame that's already inside of you. To just see it set aflame, to affirm it, to deepen that affection, and just see it set ablaze in your life in a way that will make an impact in this world. And others, I fully realize, you kind of hear that, you go, I'm kind of just unconvinced. It's kind of ridiculous. My prayer, really all summer, but especially this week, is that the Holy Spirit would surprise you this morning as we trek through his word. But either way, let me just implore, there's nothing more relevant than knowing why we do what we do. And so, forgive me, I've been writing this sermon for literally three months, all right? And I'm I'm ready to explode, and I'm going to be talking really fast, because if I were to preach everything, I had to be about five hours, all right? The Giants game would be over, all right? So, but but I'm going to distill it down to 35 minutes, I'm going to start talking really fast, because I got a lot I want to say. So, here we go, three reasons this morning, three reasons why glorifying God is the highest and best and most important purpose in the life of our church. First, glorifying God because God is the God who is. It's not a typo. Is what? No. God is the God who is. So we're in Exodus chapter 3. Let me set up the context for Exodus 3. At this point, God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, has been in captivity down in Egypt for over 400 years. So the family of Jacob and Joseph that numbered about 70 people that first went down to Egypt really as refugees that Egypt really welcomed in, saved them from a famine. Um, Things changed over time. Some new rulers came in, and now those refugees were seen as just outsiders that we could enslave. And so this family, as it grows, became this really just workhorse kind of class in the nation of Egypt. And over 400 years... That family of 70 grew into a nation of about 1.5 million. And now in his sovereign will, God has chosen to take his chosen people out of Egypt and bring them back to the land that he promised to their forefathers. So to do this, God chooses a man named Moses. And Moses would be the one through which his power will flow to lead Israel out. And here's the thing about Moses. He's really nothing special. Before this, there's nothing about Moses that God was like, that's got to be my guy. In fact, we know a little bit about history. It's not great. It's kind of a decorated past. Moses is a little rough around the edges. He has his own insecurities. Like, we should almost find some strange comfort in the fact that Moses was just an average guy. And he's not so sure about this mission to just walk into Egypt, go to the most powerful man in the world at the time, and say, um, we're going to take out 1.5 million of your workers. I hope that's all right. All right, so Moses, understandably, he's got some questions. He's just talking back and forth. The guy goes, like, how is this going to work? I I don't really know. I got some questions, God. And that's where we're going to pick it up. Exodus 3, 13 and 14. If I had to rank my favorite verses in the Bible, these two would be top five. Then Moses said to God, 
If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. A nation of 1.5 million people who at this point have kind of been immersed in Egyptian culture, don't really have allegiance to the God of their forefathers, they're going to hear this guy come in and say, God told me to take him out, and they're going to have a question. Which God? A lot of gods to choose from. A lot of worldviews to have. So what's his name? What's his power? What's he got for us? Which God is going to take us out? And God says, go tell them, I am sent you. You notice he doesn't give Moses a name. Not yet. Eventually he would. But the foundational point in all of this is that God is conveying that before any names existed, I am. You see, I'm the God who is. Period. Okay, is what? No. Before that, I'm the God who is. God wanted Moses, and by extension, all of his chosen people to acknowledge this point. We glorify God. We make much of him, not because he's the best option that's out there and we think that might work out, but before anything was, he is. Like, can we just dwell on that for a moment? Can we just sit on that? Like, I want you to think. Like, when I preach, I don't just want you to sit back and experience something. I want you to think. See the words on the page. Think in your minds, because I think nothing will stir your heart more than engaging your mind. God never had a beginning. He will never have an end. He doesn't age and get wrinkly. He doesn't get confused and frustrated. He doesn't grow old. He's not dependent on anything, and he's overpowered by nothing. He consistently and constantly just is. And here's the thing. We're at a little bit of a disadvantage in our time, in our day right now, because that doesn't shock anybody. Like, nobody at this point has been like, never heard that before. This is all stuff that you already know. And there's, honestly, in our culture, barely any reverence to the word God. Like, people, like, what's one of the most popular phrases in our culture? Oh, my God. Always. I don't even know what it's supposed to convey, like fear or surprise or sometimes joy. Like, it's really weird when you look at how that phrase gets used. Literally any emotion. Oh, my God. And when you're around it and somebody says it, if you say it, if somebody else says it, I I guarantee you, you don't flinch. Why? Because God is just God. It's just God. No big deal. But it is a big deal. God won't even tell Moses his name at first, or any name, and the reason is because no name will do justice. The first thing God reveals about himself is that he is. It's this simple power. And when it comes to glorifying God, we have to deal in reality. And the reality is that our view of God is probably too small. And our view of ourselves is probably a little too big. And I don't think we even realize how easy it is for us to make God small. Where we control him, where he exists for us, where where we shape him to best fit us, and and he answers to us, and we could hold him accountable. And again, surely many of you, most of you, all of you already know all of this. But here's my question. What if we lived like it was actually true? 
What would look different in our lives if we started where God was with Moses before anything I am? You don't think that would change some things? This is what is so significant about Jesus' dialogue in John chapter 8 with the Pharisees. We've seen the Pharisees all throughout the Gospel of Mark, right? Just diametrically opposed to Jesus. And so they come to Jesus in John chapter 8, and they're basically saying with the same thing the Israelites were saying in Exodus 3. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Are you better than Abraham? Abraham, like, he's our father, man. He's our forefather. Like, you can't possibly be better than him. Who do you think you are? And Jesus' response, tell me this doesn't matter. John 8, 58, on the screen. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Simple power. We'll get back to Jesus soon, but let's keep going. Second reason, glorifying God because God acts for his own glory. We exist to glorify God because God acts for his own glory. As you, as you read through the Bible and you discover, why does God do the things he does? Well, why, why does God uh, do what he does? Or why God, does he not do what he doesn't do? And often, in any case, there's many reasons, but the reason underneath every other reason always comes back to himself. God acts for his own glory. So I understand in our day, that point, if you just hear that and kind of take in isolation, may be a little surprising. Because we're wired to think that's kind of negative, actually. That makes God look kind of selfish. That makes God look power-hungry, kind of narcissistic. We have plenty of examples of narcissism in our culture, a lot of times in our own hearts. That looks bad. He acts for himself. Doesn't sound like God. And we can go point to verses where we see that God loves us and shepherds us and provides for us and cares for us. And I say unbelievably yes and amen a thousand times over. But here's the question. Why? Why does he do those things? Why does he love you? Why does he provide and care for you? You see, it's for us, but it's not because of us. It's really important. He does these things for you, but not because of you. It's for the sake and glory of his own name every time. Because you see, coming from point number one, if God is the only being who can say, I am, then the best and most loving thing he could do for his creation is be passionate about his own glory. If only God is glorious, if only he is infinitely valuable, then he is the only one who could handle being glorified. You see, we can't handle that kind of glory. We want it, but we can't handle it. And so when we act for ourselves and when we do seek all the glory, that is selfish. And that is the result of a fallen creation that sin has fractured where we kind of turn inward and we just stare at ourselves and it's me and it's me and it's all about me and we stop looking up. And so parents, can I just appeal to you here, right? Don't we see this in our young children? You, you know what having young kids, among other things, has affirmed for me? And listen, I love my kids with a love that hurts. Like, I'm, I'm, it surprised me how much I could love somebody when my kids were born. And you know what? They're pretty selfish. I, I can readily admit they're pretty selfish. Like, right from the start, we didn't even have to teach them. We probably showed them, but we didn't have to teach them to just care about themselves, right? It just comes natural to them. Everything's, well, what does this mean for me? How about me? What about me? What about me? Where am I going to go? Where am I going to eat? Where am I going to go? Where am I going to go sleep? Always. That's where it starts. And so we have a four-year-old, and he's getting a little older and a little bit smarter, but he's still selfish. 
all right? So here's the thing. Like, he has started to realize that Rochelle and I love when he does things for his little sister without being asked. And so he's getting smart in his mind that we reward that, and we celebrate that. So I'll hear sometimes in the other room, um, hey, Brinley, you want this toy? Like, like, cranking his neck, almost hurting himself, like, wondering if we're seeing, and, and if we don't see, or if we don't acknowledge it, he'll just, like, walk in the room and go, just gave Brindley a toy. <laughs> and we'll be like, that's awesome, buddy. Did she want it? No. <laughs> no. But I just gave it to her, and uh, what do I get now, right? So, so he, he's starting to get a little smart, smarter, but he's not that smart yet, and, and so he, here's the thing where it kind of becomes, like, it kind of hurts when I think about it for my own self. Um, as we get older, we do the same thing. We just get a little bit better at hiding it. We just get a little bit smarter on how to mask that. But the God who is, he acts for his own glory. And it's the most loving thing he could do for his creation. All right, so if I'm in your seat, I'm going, all right, where are you getting this, pastor? Got any verses? Yes. I'm glad you asked. Let's go. We're about to go, start going faster. We're going to go on a little tour and just answer some questions. So let's start with this one. Why did God create the world? God created the world out of nothing, but why? What was the point? Isaiah 43, 6 and 7. Fear not, this is the Lord speaking, fear not for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, look, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. One of the biggest myths we just need to bust right now, God did not create the world because he was lonely. There was nothing incomplete in him. They said, I just need some people around to glorify me. He did it as a public expression of his own glory, of his own infinite grandeur and worth. Okay, so next question. Why did God choose to dwell amongst the people group? So why did he have a certain people, the nation of Israel, first the family, then a nation? Why was it, were those his people? Deuteronomy 7, 6 and 7. This is Moses talking to Israel right before they're about to go into the promised land. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. Out of all the peoples of, who are on the face of the earth, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Do you see that? Why does God love you? Because he loves you. It's as simple as that. It's not because of anything that you've done. And in some ways it's like, oh man, that hurts a little bit. But if you think about it, isn't that really good news? That's not up to you to figure out whether or not God loves you. That he loves you just because he loves you. It's be so here's the thing. The reason why God loves you is not because you're so lovable. It's because he was so loving. And there's a difference in that. So again, God is for his people. He is for you. He loves you. He cares for you. But there's a motivation behind all that loving and providing that runs deeper. Let's keep going. Hang with me here. Um, why did he free them from Egypt? What was the deepest motivation? Psalm 106, 7 and 8. Again, on the screen. 
Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember. See it? They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them. Why? For his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. For the praise of his glorious grace. That is why God acts in the Bible. That's why he's continued to act across history. That's why he acts in your life today. I do not have time to keep going all the way through. I could keep going, but to speed this kind of story along, the whole story of the Old Testament, the whole narrative is how the nation of Israel is on the receiving end of this continually abundant grace, and yet they keep forgetting their God. That's the Old Testament in a nutshell. They're a rebellious people, an adulterous people, serving themselves, serving other gods, trading in the glory of God for lesser things. So eventually, after repeatedly warning them, he cleanses this nation by sending them into exile, kicking them out of the promised land to be ruled by other nations. But even in that punishment, he promises to remain among them through a remnant of people. And it's to whom this next prophetic promise is given. By the way, this passage in Ezekiel, right before the passage that just uh, really is the truth behind that song we sang, the Valley of Dry Bones. Listen to this, Ezekiel 36, 22 through 28, maybe the best passage in Scripture you've never known. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came, and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. Verse 24, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Look, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. That promise would be partially fulfilled when a remnant came back from the exile to return to the promised land. But this goes far beyond just the remnant. This is a glimpse into a promise that would not be fulfilled until hundreds of years later when the world would be witness to God's greatest and most supreme act it has ever seen. You see, the climax of the Christian story, the climactic act of the God who is, occurred when God sent his eternal son, Jesus Christ, in the form of a man, to be the one through whom forgiveness would be offered and sinners can be set free from the slavery of sin. The exodus in the Old Testament is the biggest kind of foreshadowing to what God was going to do in the future through Jesus Christ. And this act is the core of the gospel. It's the core of the good news of, of how God in his grace extends the free gift of forgiveness for those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Not because you're so lovable, but because he's so loving. 
And in doing so, people receive a new heart and a new spirit that was promised hundreds of years prior through the prophet Ezekiel. But in line with this morning's theme, I just want to show you how God's glory stands right in the center of the gospel message and why Jesus came, because it's going to have a huge impact on why we do what we do. Because you see, here's the flow of Scripture. God is the only one who is. And in accordance to his own glory, God in all his perfection is the ethical standard by which all humankind will be judged. And in Houston, we got a problem. If that's true, now we got a problem that we got to talk about. Not my words, let's take it right from God's word. The Apostle Paul says it like this in Romans chapter 1. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, watch verse 23, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The greatest tragedy in the world is when men and women trade in the glory of God for something less. It's called sin. And at the root of all sin, glory stands as one of the main reasons for it. So if you didn't catch it in chapter 1, Paul even clarifies way more clear in chapter 3 on the screen. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin at its core leads to a lot of collateral damage, leads to a lot of horizontal problems that we see in the world, but at its core, it's falling short of the glory of God. And that should discourage you because that verse just hit everybody in the room, pastor included. You can't really find your w- any wiggle room around all people. Even the church kids who grew up thinking they were just nailing it year after year after year, got all the stars and buttons and anything they needed to say. The varsity jacket of the church kids falls short of the glory of God. And it's not just something that we read, but don't we like feel that on some level? Don't, don't you feel the presence and weight of sin that, that we're not perfect? I mean, nobody, even people who don't claim to believe in Jesus or have nothing to do with Christianity would say, I'm not perfect. Nobody says they're perfect. And then all the brokenness in the world, all the headlines, all the social media feeds, all the discouragement that's out there, even despite all that, you know what's true? That no one disappoints us more than we do. Nobody disappoints you more than you. And we feel it. And it's a big deal to God. He can't just look past people tarnishing his glory and trading it in. If he did, he wouldn't be loving. If there's no wrath in God, then that means his love is gone too. Again, parents, can I appeal to you? If you're walking to a room and somebody's harming your child, what's going to come out of you in that moment? What I hope comes out, white hot wrath. We're going after it. And if you don't, if you just go, oh man, that's crazy, and walk away, then it's not that you're so loving that you did that, it's that you lacked any love in the first place. The reason why God just cannot look past the tarnishing of his glory is because he's so loving, not because he lacks it. And since that is all true, God acted. He sent Jesus, not as a plan B, like, Jesus, you gotta go, things got really messed up down there, Jesus, sorry, you gotta go. 
you're in. But sending Jesus was an extension and fulfillment of how he's always acted, that we just saw all throughout the Old Testament. But this time, it would be final. And this time, it would be complete. And I want you to see, again, just how does glory play into all this? Where does glory remain at the center of the gospel? 2 Corinthians 4, chapter 4. This is Paul talking. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Two verses later, verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Just how God created the world by saying light shine in the darkness. God creates a people amongst himself by granting them faith because he's so loving and saying light shine in the darkness. Jesus Christ is the ultimate expression of God's glory. And it's at the cross where he gave his life to take the punishment for sin that men and women deserve, that I deserve, that, that you deserved, and in its place grant the righteousness that he earned, freely offered. Like this is the most radical, scandalous part of the gospel, is that it's free. It's by his own grace that light shines into the hearts of people who again can see it. So, church, why do we glorify God? Is there any other choice? We glorify God because it's the only proper response to a God who saved us from eternal damnation purely by his grace. We glorify God because the knowledge of the glory of God in Jesus Christ has been shown into our hearts. And once this truth is shown in our hearts, then God's glory becomes our deepest desire and motivation for all things. You see, God acts for his own glory. And that's the best possible news the world has ever heard. And then third... And finally, glorifying God produces purpose. Glorifying God produces purpose. Listen, um, I'm not even kidding. There were six more points I wanted in this sermon that I had to take out for the sake of time. I wanted to talk about how glorifying God produces joy, even joy in suffering that's untouched by any circumstance. I wanted to talk about how glorifying God produces obedience. The kind of obedience that we do as an overflow of gratitude, an obedience that's a delight, not a duty. I wanted to talk about how glorifying God produces perseverance and unity and wisdom and integrity and on and on and on. I'm not kidding, but I can't. Not right now. But I want to connect how glorifying God stands at the center of our vision as a church. How it informs and produces purpose as God's people today. Again, you got a verse for that, Pastor? Yes. One verse on this. We're actually going to hit on this in a couple of weeks when it comes to worship. But a little preview here. 1 Peter 2.9. But you were a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Look, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. That you may declare his praises. That you might make much of him. That you might glorify him. So this is how I'll close. Again, my hope and desire is that this sermon is really just strengthening, emboldening, throwing gasoline on what's already true in your heart. 
a reminder that awakens us to the glory of God, just fanning the flame to stir things up and ignite your soul. Maybe you remain unconvinced, like that's still, still just a little too crazy. This is good for a sermon, some good talking points, but it doesn't really relate to me out there. How can an invisible God, how can a man who lived 2,000 years ago have any impact on my life today? Like, do we really believe that? And so let me just say, there is nothing more relevant or applicable in our lives than having a purpose. Regardless of what you believe or might not believe in this world, and everybody believes something, right? It takes faith to believe anything. Every morning, we will all wake up and we will set out to live according to some kind of purpose that we think is going to make us happy. Again, it's not just a Christian thing. It's not just a religious thing. This is as much an atheist thing as a religious thing. I'm going to wake up and live according to a purpose that I think and hope it's going to make me happy. So the question is not, if you will look for purpose, but where are you going to look for it? Where will our church look for it? Across history, the dominant cultural mindset on purpose has kind of shifted and molded and kind of changed by generation and location, but right now, 2018, United States, the dominant mentality about purpose is that something that we create for ourselves that we have the freedom and power to create it, that we can take life by the horns and just do it, right? Famous company out there, just do it. Just do it. You do it for yourself. Love all the gear. Don't love the vision statement. But doesn't that explain kind of the world? came across this in Huffington Post this past week, which I think perfectly captures this mindset that is everywhere. Read this. This is a direct quote from an article about how purpose matters. So obviously it caught my eye. The writer says this, it does not matter how you get this sense of meaning and purpose in life. What's most important is that you experience your life as having a meaning and purpose. The only question that matters is, what is meaning of life for you? Each of us is free to formulate her or his own answer to this question. By doing so, you get a personal sense of life and meaning and purpose and thus gain a sense of agency and choice by through understanding your own personal life goals. That mentality and that approach is so easy to buy into because it's all around us and in some ways even within us, if we're honest. And I'm telling you, it will lead you down to a path where purpose is seen as something you create for yourself as opposed to something you discover in God. And it will always get exposed in due time. Listen, you can't gain purpose by aiming for purpose. You gain purpose when you aim for the glory of God. And it's the only purpose that will deliver on its promises, the only purpose worth living for at the very center of who we are and what shapes us in every little thing we do. Because you see, you know what we all know about life? It's just so daily, isn't it? That's the thing about life. It's, it consists of mostly mundane, routine, everyday moments. It's the way God designed it. And yet... In each mundane, routine, everyday moment, we can live out for God's glory. Everything has a purpose for the believer, which is why Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. When you're in Christ and part of the body of Christ in the church, everything is transcendent. There is no meaningless. 
And so the vision of Grace Church, to say the least, is to glorify God because we think it's an extension of the purpose of every believer. Okay, so how do we actually do that? And what does that actually look like in the life of the church? We're going to hit on it all in the next five weeks. But we start with the fact that the answer beneath every question that begins with why finds its answer in glorifying God because he alone is the God who is. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your glory. We thank you for how it has been revealed to us. Father, help us behold it, who you are. Let it shape us, Lord, not because of us, but because of your name's sake. And so I just pray for this room. I pray for everybody here, Father. I especially just pray for those who are just tired. Father, they're tired of how unloved maybe they feel, how unworthy their life may seem, who are beaten down by shame and guilt, not only from others, but from themselves. Father, we pray the truth of your word would be an oasis in the desert this morning. Father, lift our eyes upward to your grace and to your goodness. Free us from this bondage and let us rest in the reality that we can live for your glory. And to name your son, Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.